Welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by a giant ocean, talking cloud, reversible micro-USB cables, and technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode 12, recorded on 22 April 2015. I'm having technology issues today, Dan. Lots of them. Yeah. Yeah, my uh, flux capacitor is running behind my configurator, and uh, micro USB is not, in fact, reversible. Uh, you know, I could have sworn micro USB was reversible, but only if it was the USB C port. Mm, yeah, I, I think my mouse thinks that micro USB C is reversible right now, and that's why it's not charging. That's, yeah, that or your kids got to it first. Yeah, good idea. We'll blame the kids. Yeah, it's, uh, yep. so anyway, a um, little bit of follow-up. Uh, last week, we were talking about uh, good old premium storage and how that was in beta. And last week, who would know? The Azure team came out and said, premium storage for all, generally available. So uh, premium storage is out there now. Uh, there's a, <clears throat> a link to the Azure Microsoft blog for April 16th that you can go read to your heart's desire. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, what this means to me, I don't know what it means to you, Scott, but what, what it means to me is that I will be able to go out and start spinning up VMs wherever I like, um, <clears throat> as long as the location actually has premium storage available. And using that for my persistent disk for my VMs and making my VMs super snappy without actually having to go down the path of using the Godzilla series. Yeah, so first of all, I'd like to address the issue of uh, Mark Rusinovich not publishing this post until about mm, 30 seconds after we had uh, published the podcast for the week. So I think the Azure group is uh, fully out to troll us, and uh, they're, they're really starting to screw with my head. Uh, as for premium storage, awesome that it's out there. Uh, it is super duper pricey. Uh, I don't know if you've done any costing estimates yet with your clients around this, uh, but we've definitely looked at it for some workloads, uh, particularly some big like SQL uh, data warehousing kind of scenarios where we really need uh, some transactional throughput and, and we're doing kind of uh, a lot of writes and things like that to the database tier. Uh, but it does get pricey very, very fast. So you, you've, you've got to kind of think about uh, when and where it makes the most sense. And then, like you said, it's not available in every region either. Uh, they said that it's going to come to more regions in the near future. I'm not sure what that means to them or to you or to me. Uh, typically, that's, that's a couple months and tends to be a slow rollout. So as of today, it's in six regions and that gives 13 more to go uh, but interestingly enough it is available in some of the closed off regions like china uh, which is kind of nice to see so uh, folks that are out there and leveraging those bits and pieces uh, will be able to get by so it seems like it's in pretty much every part of the world so it, it picks up apac pretty well picks up uh, the U.S. Uh, continental uh, North America area pretty well with uh, West U.S. and East U.S. Uh, one uh, region in Europe is up and going, uh, and then uh, the two out in APAC, there's uh, Asia and Japan, uh, depending on where folks are running and doing their thing. 
Yeah, <clears throat> like on the, the storage premium, or I guess just the storage pricing page, it has that little box down at the bottom that they use in their cute little markup language to denote, you know, use this image, use this box, use this style, yada, 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 um, where it says premium storage is not available in central U.S. region. Please select another region. Oh well. Yeah, uh, it's it's good stuff. I mean, I mean, if you, if you have a, uh, a a need for it, and uh, there's a kind of a, a business case or an application use case to, to justify uh, the cost and and everything else behind it, uh, it's super snappy. So uh, you can go up to something like 32 terabytes of uh, high IOPS disk. And then with striping and everything else, you can get on the order of 64,000 uh, IOPS, uh, which isn't too, uh, isn't too shabby for a, uh, a cloud IaaS provider. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, 32 gig, that's <clears throat> fairly large. Um, the other thing to think about is this goes kind of hand in hand with that whole uh, ES series VMs. So really... You know, the intent of premium storage is to be able to go down the path of <clears throat> using this for uh, page blobs, data disks within virtual machines. Uh, but you can go down the path and use you know, anything you want uh, if you go spin up one of those DS-backed uh, machines or your G-series machines. So um, pretty cool. Um, I personally have not started playing with this, but uh, it is definitely a technology that I'm excited to see uh, take off and flourish. So, the... yeah, I, I mean, you can go and turn it on, right? It, it, it's out there and it's up there. And uh, for 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 people like you and I, we can leverage our MSDN credentials with with or our MSDN credits rather with no no issue, right? Um, yeah. So if I go in with uh, my MSDN account or with whatever account I've got. I can go ahead and add this. In the past, I actually had to go in and click on a little box that signed me up to uh, like ask to be added. And then you had to go through the whole process of being added. So very similar to other programs Microsoft has, like the uh, multi-factor authentication preview with Active Directory authentication library for Office 365. They had a link on the page. You had to go click on it and say, hey, guys. I'd like to be a customer to try this out. So um, kind of neat that, yeah, I can just, I can go at it now as long as I am in the appropriate location. So remember when you create your storage account, you are verifying the storage account is in a certain location. If you choose that central U.S. and you say, ah, why is this not showing up for me when I want to add something? That would be why. And if you try and spin something up that, you know, is in your subscription, you want to use the storage account, and that uh, is connected to resources that aren't necessarily near uh, your other stuff, you're going to be in for a load of pain when you actually try and get uh, some of this stuff up and operational. So, yeah, just uh, be mindful of where you're creating your, uh, your resources, and you should be good to go. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. So, so at the end of the day, it was nice to see that capability come out. Uh, and then there were a slew of announcements around uh, Office 365 over the last week as well. Um, so should, you, you want to move on to some new stuff? Uh, you know, I actually wanted to follow up on one other thing. Um, <clears throat> as far as uh, Azure goes, um, I know there's other Azure announcements, but we had talked about uh, DocumentDB going GA last week. 
And this past weekend, I attended the uh, Northern Virginia Code Camp that's put on by a couple different folks, uh, including our number one listener, Tim Farrow. So it was uh, Tim, David Berry, uh, Ed Snyder, Rima Reyes, and there was one other person. Bring their name, but anyway, they put this event on, and uh, a friend of mine, Bart Losley, did a presentation on Document DB, and it was kind of interesting just uh, hearing, you know, his experiences with different database tools, such as Document DB for not only SQL um, database type. <laughs> the one thing that he mentioned, and I don't know how much you've uh, you've played around with Document DB, but was just the storage that's used on the back end. And they talk about how it's highly scalable, how you have different consistency models, uh, where you can have it synchronous or asynchronous. So if you want to have like 30,000 commits going on at the same time, and you're not really too you know, worried about things getting committed immediately, how you can go, that, go about doing that. Uh, but it was interesting, he mentioned that in the background it's using SSD. And I kind of scratched my head and I was like, oh, that's neat. Um, no wonder it's so fast. They're already using kind of the, the premium storage on the back end of DocumentDB. Uh, one of the attendees in the room actually raised their hand. They were like, oh, well, what about MongoDB? That's supposed to be incredibly fast, too. Why is it slower than DocumentDB? And my guess is, and I know this is stretching on follow-up, but my guess is that the reason DocumentDB is you know, so much faster than anything else is because it's using that SSD, whereas anything you boot up off the portal or Azure, until at least now, uh, you didn't have the ability to point it at like SSD for the back end. So <clears throat> obviously it's going to be, uh, you know, an order of magnitude faster using SSD back end instead of striped back end on some platter drive. So anyway, that was my little follow-up. Yeah, well, I, I think it's important for folks to keep in mind that uh, MongoDB and DocumentDB are uh, inherently different uh, offerings, right? So, so they're both uh, NoSQL deployments, and they kind of split down the path of one being traditional IaaS with MongoDB and DocumentDB being a pure kind of born-in-the-cloud uh, PaaS offering. So they, they have some fundamental differences in the way they operate and work, right? So you, you mentioned uh, kind of the, the scaling and speed and things that we can get out of a uh, platform as a service implementation with something like DocumentDB. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of inherently different than the way Mongo runs. So the guys out at, uh, there's a site called justazure.com, um, and they actually just did a write-up on this uh, to follow up on the uh, GA of DocumentDB. And they kind of walk down the path of explaining all these differences along the way. And they actually dive into uh, the sharding and replication principles that are different between uh, DocumentDB and MongoDB. So I, I don't think it's necessarily that MongoDB is faster. It's that MongoDB could be run on your own kit. Um, so you had the control around that and what went into that. And unless you were using a MongoDB uh, PaaS offering from some other provider that wasn't Microsoft, because they don't have one, um, or you had gotten something in the marketplace, something like that, um, you, you know, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're in that boat of it's IaaS and you're responsible for uh, the kit and the scaling and kind of how you're going to handle all those bits and pieces. The nice thing about DocumentDB is for all of its limitations, uh, and it, it does have 
quite a few when you look at it at the actual document level and what you're going to do with it in something like MongoDB versus um, the DocumentDB offering um, is that it's that pure PaaS implementation. So you're going to pay for the performance level with an SLA uh, and you're going to get a bunch of other things along the way, but it's also going to work in the way that Microsoft has designed it. So uh, like DocumentDB does use sharding, uh, but it has its own uh, primary key to do sharding. So it has a, a little key underscore self versus something like MongoDB. Uh, you, you're going to go down the path of creating your own key and figuring out your own sharding principles and things like that. Uh, so the nice thing is it's all kind of done for you in DocumentDB. Uh, one of the other kind of advantages that I see for it outside of just being a, a pure PaaS play and saying, okay, I need a NoSQL implementation and I know I'm going to be able to live within the constraints of it. Uh, is that outside of SDK support and other things that, that uh, these vendors tend to offer, uh, DocumentDB was also designed up front uh, to be driven just uh, by a pure RESTful API, uh, very similar to the rest of the Azure platform, right? So last week we spent a bunch of time talking about uh, the uh, resource manager and uh, the APIs that drive that and how they're all RESTful and how PowerShell wraps all that and really just uh, wraps those, those REST calls. Uh, so for DocumentDB, that's that's the same thing, right? So you're buying uh, an SLA around performance and storage and a bunch of other things, um, but you're also uh, buying into a kind of common programming model that'll translate across uh, everything you're doing within uh, the Azure platform. No, those are those are great points, Scott. I guess I was just uh, kind of chuckling that somebody. <clears throat> In Bart's session, uh, I was just going on and on about how MongoDB ran so slow and how uh, the document DB that Azure has, you know, is so peppy. And again, it just, you know, it dawned on me, kind of like you mentioned, uh, you're effectively going in and setting up your own kit. And at least until now, uh, when you were spinning up from the portal, you probably didn't have the option to select the faster, uh, <clears throat> more scalable. Um, storage set on the back end, but uh, very much like you said, you know, you're looking at a PaaS offering versus say IaaS offering, which clearly different. It's like comparing apples and uh, bananas, but uh, you know, not even that, it's more apples and cargo airliners. So like I said, it's, 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 uh, you have to recognize the limitations and uh, advantages of each of them when you walk in. You know, if you're walking into a NoSQL implementation and you're saying, I need to do uh, large scale document storage, uh, so your document objects are going to be big, so, uh, or, and by big, I mean on the order of like one or two megabytes or even bigger than that, uh, there's um, constraints in DocumentDB, like our maximum document size is uh, 512 kilobytes. Uh, so to have that in there, um, you know, you've got to know that up front and, and be able to approach it and uh, get at the things you need. But it is driven out of our storage accounts. So once our storage accounts are up and running, we're really only kind of limited by the constraints on the storage account at that point, right? So we've got some transactional constraints and some other things. But for the most part, the platform takes care of that for us and figures out what it needs to do. Yep. <clears throat> no doubt. Anyway, some other uh, interesting little bits from world of technology. Um, earlier this morning, or earlier today in Northern Virginia, tomorrow in Australia, uh, Google released what they call their Google Fi. Uh, this is 
interesting offering has nothing to do with cloud whatsoever, but uh, interesting offering nonetheless that basically Google is putting this out there. Um, they're riding on the back of other uh, wireless networks, so they're using 4G and Wi-Fi. Um, and I guess they've kind of gone out done the path of you know, making the agreements and whatnot so that the device automatically just hops on to the network when it sees, oh, it's got a better uh, you know, carrier status than what I'm currently on, or I'm transitioning off a wireless network because I'm sitting at Starbucks or you know, some other coffee shop like Pete's. Um, it'll transition the signal directly off that onto a wireless car carrier to keep the conversation going. Um, the little caveat to this is that it only works with the Nexus 6 device. Um, it does not work with anything else at the moment. And I'm guessing that's just a, you know, something to do with the way they, they're using radios uh, to be able to do this signaling back and forth with all the different uh, networks and whatnot. Uh, the other neat thing they are doing, though, is I know a lot of folks kind of complain about having to pay for data. Um, any of the over-the-air data that you're using uh, actually only pay for what you use. And I know a lot of folks say, oh, well, I already did that today. Um, I pay for 10 gigabytes of data per month. I use anywhere from 6 to 9.5. Um, all depends on where I am, what I'm doing, what workloads I'm running off my phone. Uh, whether or not uh, Overcast FM inadvertently runs an update and causes me to re-download everything. Uh, you know, so it really does depend. But in this case, the other thing they have is pretty much they say, oh, you bought four gigabytes of data, but you only used two? No problem. We'll refund you the other two back. So kind of a neat little uh, process they've got in place there. I'm not quite certain how they're actually going to do that from like a accounting perspective with the actual carriers. Uh, but it is definitely something that I think hopefully will start to push, uh, you know, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, the Telestras of the world into doing something that actually is for the consumer instead of uh, just, you know, having kind of what they have today. Because, I mean, at least for me, I'm not downgrading from the 10 gigabyte package that I have because I can't actually go back in and buy it. It's not something that's listed at the price that I want or the price that I'm actually paying for it right now. And I don't feel like having to go back down the road later and pay more if I do need that actual amount. So silly grandfathered systems of the U.S. telecom system. Yeah, I live in the magical world of uh, Australia, where it tends to be a little more like Europe. So uh, the majority of the time, uh, buy your phone up front. Uh, so pay full cost. So like uh, I'm walking around with an iPhone, you know, so you pay seven, eight hundred dollars, whatever that is for that device up front. Uh, but then your plan tends to be a lot cheaper. So I'm actually, I, I'm on a prepaid plan and I pay $48 a month for basically what amounts to me for unlimited talk and text because I don't use that stuff too much. Uh, but I get close to five gigs of data in there. Uh, and you know, that's $50 Australian. So probably about, uh, you know, 40 US right now. Uh, so prepaid um, and even a lot of the postpaid plans out here tend to be uh, a lot better. Like you said, the US system is kind of locked into its ways and it's different than the rest of the world because uh, that's what the US tends to do. Um, so Google's been trying to do this for a long time, right? They had um, uh, their Nexus program and, and uh, you know, let's bring out devices that are uh, really cheap and, uh, you know, kind of break even below cost. Uh, in some cases, uh, and, and they've kind of gotten away from that as Google has stopped branding the Nexus devices themselves. 
and now they've got uh, like LG and, and other partners making them for them. So I think like that Nexus Six is, um, you know, it's more in line with something like an iPhone. It's pretty expensive. Uh, so this is nice. Uh, who knows how it'll work out for them getting into the uh, MVNO game, uh, becoming this kind of other uh, operator piggybacking on top of somebody else. So they're piggybacking on top of uh, T-Mobile and Sprint. So uh, T-Mobile is probably how they get that worldwide coverage thing. Uh, you know, one of the nifty things about them is, uh, you know, if you're a T-Mobile customer, um, uh, I believe you get free international data uh, on some of your plans. So I know, uh, like, uh, my, my wife's uncle does a lot of traveling. Um, when he came out to visit, you know, I said, hey, do you want me to grab you a SIM? I usually do that when people come visit us. He said, no, my data is free and everything like that. So not a problem at all. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some nice features to these things. Like you said, the cost is really nice. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's good to get a plan that's a base of $20 and then just add on $10 increments for how much data you want on top of that and where it ends out. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be nice to see if it can take off, uh, but it's a typical Google project, right? It's, it's very self-limited by only being available on the Nexus 6. Uh, you know, those tend to be uh, not the easiest devices to always grab off the Play Store and things like that anyway. Um, and then they're piggybacking as an MVNO on some uh, pretty cruddy networks for big portions of the country, right? So you're going to want probably like tech-savvy people to pick this stuff up first. And uh, T-Mobile is nigh on, on useless in uh, New York and LA and kind of any major metropolitan area. Um, so then you're piggybacking on the Sprint network and who knows what they can actually take out on theirs because they've been, uh, from all accounts, falling behind too. Uh, so, it, you know, interesting play. I think it's just them kind of playing around with things again. Um, and, you know, it, it wouldn't be that surprising to see them go through like an iteration or two of this and then just say, well, it didn't work. Uh, let's drop it and go on to the next thing. Yeah, it would not surprise me if we suddenly saw uh, three months from now Google release something and said, well, that was fun. Uh, moving on. But you never know. This might be, you know, their, uh, this might be their next Google wave. So. Yeah, that went well for everybody. Oops. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, so, so let's get back to kind of some of the core news stuff out there. Uh, lots of talk in SharePoint land this week, right? Um, so did you hear that SharePoint 2016 is going to be a real product? No way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently they've come out for the 48th time uh, and decided to reiterate that there is going to be an on-premises release of SharePoint. You know, I, I could have sworn they said they were going to do that at the last uh, SharePoint conference during one of the sessions. They came out and they said there will be a SharePoint V next. Yeah, uh, they they were pretty adamant about that. Uh, I think most folks read that as uh, maybe they'll only have one more release of it, uh, which could be the case. Uh, you know, maybe it kind of moves to the Office 365 model where we have uh, just one major release and then uh, a bunch of quick little CUs and incrementals, right? Uh, Bill Baer has kind of been out there talking about how the patching uh, process is going to change uh, for that product and everything that's going to go into it. They want to get away from the kind of monolithic, you know, one and a half to two gig CU updates that come out and take a long time and uh, to apply and tend to have a lot of hurt and get down to more incremental updates, which is nice because as we go month to month, if you look the way Office 365 is updated. If they can get to updating SharePoint 2016 in that same manner, 
uh, we're actually going to get new functionality a lot quicker. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean UI updates and fixes and things like that. It, it might, but it doesn't have to mean that. Um, but it really means code fixes a lot quicker or updates to new functionality, right? If you look at the way like uh, Office 365 and the, uh, the CSOM, the client-side object model stuff comes along, um, they tend to have incremental updates to that that get missed out on premises because you know we're, we're dependent on patching and other things. So if that uh, whole process becomes easier and we can push things out, um, really we could start with SharePoint Server 2016 and then it just becomes maybe SharePoint Server and we're kind of continuously integrating uh, new bits as they come down the pipe. Yeah, I think my my one concern with all that is just going to be the change fatigue that uh, IT pros and developers are going to go through. But you know that could just uh, that could be the new normal that everybody's just going to have to get adjusted to with SharePoint 2016. Yeah, I, I think uh, folks are going to have to get used to that, right? Uh, this is the like you said, it's 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 going to be the new normal. Um, if anybody's not there yet and uh, they're not experiencing that constant change fatigue. Uh, then they've probably got some other issues going on uh, because it, it, the, the pace of change is phenomenal. Um, and at the end of the day, it might be a little bit harder for us, uh, but it's probably better for uh, the users of the system, right? To have the, the latest and greatest updates that are coming out and the latest and greatest functionality that's, that's uh, falling down the pipe, you know, week to week and month to month. Yep. So... You know, I'm, I guess I'm curious to see how this is all going to shake out with SharePoint 2016. Uh, I'm sure that folks that are going to be attending Ignite, <laughs> Ignite in a couple weeks are going to hear a lot about it and probably going to see, uh, I've been, I guess I read that Bill Bear was going to be showing off the first glimpses of uh, SharePoint 2016, but uh, who's to know what that actually means? Um, that could just be that uh, they're going to show, you know, a blurred out image that of a web browser like Spartan or IE11, and uh, that'll be that. Who knows? Well, they have announced some timelines, right? So they, they had this blog post that came out and said, um, you know, we're committing to uh, on-premises uh, releases, and so we're, we're going to see uh, beta bits or kind of alpha whatever stuff uh, for server 2016 uh, towards the end of this calendar year. Um, so... Uh, you kind of got to make mention of Microsoft's fiscal year and their calendar year, totally different things. They run on that, you know, weird fiscal schedule uh, where their year closes out in July. So it's really the end of the calendar year that we'll see uh, kind of beta bits. And then um, hopefully in the second quarter of 2012, um, or not 2012, uh, 2016, uh, we will see uh, a more production ready release or something that's ready to RTM and come out uh, and do those updates. So, you know, they, they, they talked about a bunch of things in the blog post outside of timing. Um, they also had some stuff in there about uh, kind of where they see uh, the platform going from uh, an, an experience perspective, right? So we've been talking about workloads for a long time and now we got to talk about experiences. Um, so SharePoint Server 2016 is going to have its own kind of um, experiences, whether those are for users, uh, so better insights into what they're doing, or even on the infrastructure side, so uh, being able to do better deployments, right? Like, like the patching kind of thing. Let's take some of the lessons learned from Office 365 and that platform and uh, give something back to IT pros 
who are stuck behind a desk uh, or locked away in a skiff or something like that. Um, they did talk a little bit about the hybrid side of things and how they want to get to the point maybe where, um, you know, it was interesting the way it was kind of phrased. I read it as um, you don't have to go to the cloud. So we recognize that customers um, don't want to go to the cloud, but to have some functionality, you're going to have to be in a hybrid, right? So uh, think of things like Delve for on-premises and how all that stuff runs through uh, Azure Machine Learning today and kind of builds up the graph and does other things. Uh, it sounds like you're still going to have to have some of that connectivity to the outside world, uh, which is probably going to make some folks a little bit uh, sad, right? Uh, because there are some organizations that just can't reach out to the outside at all. I know I have some customers who are saying, hey, you know, you know it'd, it'd be great to have improvements around um, uh, like the social stack. And, you know, I, I have to sit there and say, sorry, guys, Microsoft has pretty much said there's not going to be any improvements to on-premises social. It's Yammer or bust. And, you know, they look at you and they say, we can't go to Yammer. Uh, and then you go, well, mm, you're going to be stuck with this or we're going to have to look to another product that maybe integrates through or does something else. It's going to have some, some costing implications and some other things. Yeah, I uh, I read pretty much kind of the same deal where they were going to be working on those uh, little bits and pieces here and there. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to read Chris O'Brien's article. Um, he was going through and talking about uh, SharePoint Hybrid and what he kind of expects to see in his uh, nuts and bolts of SharePoint article. Um, it was interesting to me because I guess he uh, kind of said, you know, hey, here's what you can do with Hybrid today where you've got search, you got BCS, you've got your OneDrive for Business redirect, and you've got, if you use it, the SAP Duet Connector, um, where you can do uh, inbound, I guess, so <clears throat> inbound hybrid. And he pretty much said, you know, hey, here's a list of things you still can't do. Um, hopefully, we'll start to see some of these things reach out from the cloud and that hybrid connection. Um, <clears throat> I would be interested to see if they're going to take some sense of... Uh, piece of the uh, Delve or, you know, even just uh, some of the additional capabilities they've thrown out there in Office 365, like uh, good old, um, uh, what is it, the uh, groups component uh, where you can go in and uh, if you want to go through the process, you can set up things to uh, basically have that uh, self-serve site collection created that happens to use Exchange, SharePoint, and a touch of Yammer, although it almost looks like it's the old uh, discussion groups. Um, so that's out there. I'm, I'm really curious if they're going to try and bring that on-prem and just allow folks to do that uh, through some sort of configuration where they have to have SharePoint 2016 and Exchange 2016 um, to be able to run that kind of workload that uh, they made in the cloud. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because you said made in the cloud, right? And you mentioned a pure SaaS product again. So Yammer groups are part of that. So now we're back to uh, maybe organizations are going to be put in a place where they have to connect their on-premises system in some way uh, to an Office 365 data center or an Azure data center. Uh, to be able to kind of let those bits and pieces come through and, and talk, whether that's a, a VPN or Direct Connect, or uh, maybe there's something built on top of the service bus, right? Like the AD app proxy kind of stuff. Um, but some of those components, like the, there's 
you know, never going to be a version of on-premises Yammer. Uh, so some of those components that only live in the cloud uh, are going to be uh, interesting to see how, how they address and kind of where the gaps are. And I'm more interested in, I guess, how they sell the gaps, right? And, and where we can kind of um, fill in and offer guidance. Because I think a lot of this stuff is going to be uh, still a bunch of compromises. It's, it's not going to be about, um, uh, it, it's not going to be about having your cake and eating it too. It, it's going to be about sitting down and figuring out where you're actually going to be able to get the most bang for your buck and where organizations are going to have to adapt to, uh, figure out and, and kind of change policies around where it makes sense for bits and pieces to start living. Yep. No, I'm totally on board with you, man. The other, uh, interesting thing that comes with that, though, is you know, a lot of the organizations, uh, and this goes back to kind of how we've talked about Azure in the past, um, looking at Azure and saying, hey, we've got uh, ExpressRoute. So really, Azure is just, you know, a network, connect, uh, network connection from our rack to Azure. Um, so some of these things, you know, if they if they start getting used to those capabilities, who's to say, you know, SharePoint 2016 couldn't launch them into more of that hybrid configuration once they get to start using the Azure platform a little bit more too. That's where they're going to go with it, right? Uh, it's going to be more about uh, what are you going to give up by not being able to adapt or, or, or adopt that platform, right? Um, there, there's always organizations that have kind of policies in place, whether that's uh, like maybe a data sovereignty thing, or uh, there's some uh, legal or regulatory thing that keeps you there, uh, or like a lot of like the U.S. federal government, right? Um, they, you know, they've got to be in these specific government clouds, or in some cases, depending on uh, kind of data classifications and other things and what's going on, uh, that stuff has to be uh, you know held very tight to the chest, and they're never going to be able to take advantage of some of those things just because the uh, the the actual functionality that drives everything is going to live on the other side of the fence, and and they're never going to be able to hop over and get there. Yep. So, kind of you know with all this talk about SharePoint 2016, uh, that you know takes us back a moment. We say to ourselves, well, what about SharePoint 2013? That's my organization's just getting to that. You know, I'm hoping, really hoping that. Uh, we'll be able to really start using this system and SharePoint 2016 is far enough off that we may not adopt it immediately. Um, I kind of chuckled and you may have chuckled as well, but Stefan Gossner posted up last week. He said, well, uh, support for 2013 RTM is over. Um, so to me, you know, obviously I have been stressing to folks, do not use RTM, always install the March public update. And I think there was another public update that actually came out even more recently for 2015 um, that was kind of the, well, if you're on Service Pack 1, that's great. But if you can be on this uh, 2013, uh, you know, March 2015 public update, that's even better. Um, I guess, you know, it's just it's similar to so many other things out there, uh, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, on the software side of things is going to be more and more difficult, especially with these new products on the horizon, starting to watch these products that we're currently using today no longer being supported. You know, folks need to get up to date, right? So 
2013 RTM so far and so long ago that if they're not on Service Pack 1, uh, there, there's really no excuse for it at this point. Um, you, you know, you, you, you've got to get there just from a functionality and uh, really a, a supportability side of things. Organizations pay a lot of money for SharePoint, um, especially if you're in the enterprise SKUs and things like that. So you're paying not just for your servers and your server licensing, um, but also those user cows, right? So now we're back to if your users don't have functionality and support, uh, you're, you're not leaving them in the best place that you can. Um, so, so for organizations that are looking to patch, um, there's been uh, all sorts of issues around this, right? We've talked about uh, security updates and Windows updates and how the CU uh, process has changed and we've had Uber packages and we haven't had Uber packages and, um, you know, they come and go and we're back and forth. Uh, so one of the interesting things is uh, they had the latest CU for uh, April 2015 came out and the way they baseline that was um, they baselined it to Service Pack 1. Unfortunately, there were uh, two versions of Service Pack 1. Uh, there was kind of the, uh, the bad version that came out first and broke a bunch of stuff in the patching process. And then they did a re-release, uh, which was just a, a, you know, a, a little point release higher. And um, that's what they consider to be kind of Service Pack 1. But the issue is for organizations out there that were doing fresh or like slipstream installs or things like that, or they were installing on the latest and greatest server OSs, so like server 2012 R2, um, we had to use media that was either from the MSCN download center or if you were doing a, a production implementation uh, or kind of more real world, uh, you would have been using media from the volume licensing center. The problem with that is it worked great and it was slipstreamed to SP1. Uh, but the version of SP1 in there that it was actually tagged to was the bad version of SP1. So now what's happening is, is uh, folks are going out and they're trying to install this latest and greatest CU. And the CU is saying, I can't install because Service Pack 1 isn't available. And everybody's kind of looking back and saying, well, this stinks because I'm running at Service Pack 1. Here's the version number I'm at. I'm using the media that Microsoft provided to me, right? And that Microsoft still provides to me today. You know, if you go out to MSDN or the downloads or the volume licensing center and you get this media, it's going to come with basically this uh, weirdly labeled version of SP1. So uh, what folks need to do if they want to get up to this latest and greatest version is uh, they need to actually reinstall the downloadable version of Service Pack 1 and run through that configuration and the bits and everything just to get the version number updated internally in the database, uh, the config DB, and then they can go ahead and uh, lay down this latest and greatest CU. So uh, Todd Clint wrote about this. Uh, Trevor Seward uh, also uh, went and, and, and they went back and forth on this and figured some of this stuff out. Uh, and then uh, Stefan Gosner, who, who you just talked about, who wrote this blog post about uh, RTM support ending, um, he released a PowerShell script that uh, you can run against your boxes in your farm to actually figure out uh, what, um, what version is installed of everything um, for your SharePoint products and also for your language packs because uh, the installation and, and patching stuff also applies to your language packs, right? You can't apply Service Pack 1 for SharePoint Server 2013 and then say, well, I'm going to leave my, uh, my Spanish language pack on RTM because there would have been a Service Pack for your language pack as well. 
um, just to make it really confusing and bring things up. Um, so he released an, a nice PowerShell script that uh, actually just looks at registry keys uh, on the local server and it spits back and it says, here's all the things that are installed on this server. So uh, you can go ahead and run that across every server in your farm, figure out where things are, what servers might need to have the, um, the new baseline service pack one installed over the top of what's already there, uh, just so you can go ahead and go to the latest and greatest CU. Uh, usual uh, rules apply, right? You don't wanna go to the latest and greatest CU necessarily unless you need functionality that's in that CU, that, that guidance still hasn't changed, right? Unless there's a break fix or something in there that you really need, uh, you shouldn't be going there. Uh, but now hopefully, you know, if you do wanna go out there, there's a couple more tools that are available to you. So uh, he's got this PowerShell script out there and uh, there was this thing that sits out on the uh, uh, TechNet uh, script gallery it's, it's a little VB script. It's called the Robust Office Inventory Scan School, Scan Tool, or uh, ROI Scan. Uh, and that was a little VBS script that would kind of do the same things as PowerShell script did, um, but it also applies to Office clients and things like that, where it can spit back um, a bunch of information about what's installed and not installed. So uh, hopefully if you can just get by with the PowerShell script, that's great. If you can't and it's still not installing and you're having other problems, you can move on to this VBS script uh, that gives you far more verbose output uh, to give you an idea of what's installed and what's not installed and kind of how you can move through and get to uh, installing the bits that, that you do want to lay down. So I guess, uh, yeah, looking at the script, it's pretty darn handy and pretty darn simple. Uh, caveat, you got to have PowerShell 3.0 installed on the server if you're using SharePoint 2010, which is not necessarily something you want to... Um, install unless you've got, uh, I guess, one of the later server packs, service packs, because you're introducing things that don't play nicely with the, uh, what is the, the Windows management framework? Yeah, well, this is only for 2013, right? We don't need to worry about 2010. I mean, I know that had the same CUs and everything, but it doesn't have the same issue with laying it down. It's really this weird service pack one issue where we had two versions of service pack one in the 2013 SKU and, and pushing those bits around. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, Stefan does in his article say, you know, if you want to use this on 2010, you can. Um, but, you know, there's just some little caveats. So uh, he has a version on there that has SharePoint 2010 with PowerShell 2.0. Um, if you really want to run the more verbose version, um, you can do that with the PowerShell 3.0, but you just got to make certain you got the right service pack on. I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is more intended for 2013 folks to run against, though. Um, to me, though, uh, you know, for me, I'd always just done like, you know, get SP farm and then done a version property off of it. But this is obviously way more verbose than what it actually uh, pulls back. So good stuff. Well, the, the problem with that get SP farm thing is, is that's not actually the version that's installed, right? That version number that's shown to you in central administration and get SP farm um, doesn't mean anything. Uh, so Stefan has some blog posts about that too, about how uh, basically the way they built uh, those mechanisms to display versioning to you are really useless. Um, you know, it would have been nice if they had told us this back when they started, you know, releasing the product way back in 2001. Uh, but, you know, for years and years and years, it's, it's been this way. Um, so you really do have to look down to those registry keys and everything else. So um, in the past, the way to figure out what we actually had installed meant going into central administration or the object model 
and digging through down to the individual patch level what was out there. Uh, the nice thing about uh, this latest PowerShell script is it's just reading out of the registry. Um, so it really is kind of the source of truth because that's what SharePoint is looking to as well to say, hey, what's out there and what's installed locally on this server when we go ahead and lay down a new patch and things like that. So some of the uh, MSI logic, right, that says what's available, what's not available to me um, on this server is based out of that stuff that's held in the registry. Uh, so it's definitely a handy script to, to have around and kind of keep in your back pocket, uh, especially if you're doing uh, re remediation or any kind of installations or patching or things like that. All this time we've been lied to, Scott. Yeah, no, it's, it, oh man, it's, it, it's annoying, right? That like you think, well, hey, you put a version number on the page in central admin. Here's my servers. Here's my farm version. What's up? And then you go, well, that's really not your farm version because maybe one of your servers is different. Maybe you forgot to do this over here. So really, we're going to make this uh, the biggest pain that we can. And you're going to have to go here, 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 and here uh, to look at everything. So it, it kind of speaks to what a uh, kind of monolithic beast of a, a, a product that SharePoint server is, right? Um, and how it's carried over a bunch of that old stuff through the years. So maybe that's one of the things that gets fixed in 2016, right? They said, they said hey, the IT Pro experience is going to be better. Uh, it would certainly be nice to actually see some of that stuff improved upon. So instead of, you know, querying an object, we'll just query the registry. But yeah, now I got it. Um, speaking of uh, patching, uh, for those of you out there that are listening, uh, do not... Go and install SQL Server 2014 Service Pack 1 if you want it to actually continue to work. Uh, somebody found out pretty much the hard way that it went in and destroyed his master database. So uh, if you happen to download Service Pack 1 last week, um, pretty please do not install it. Uh, Microsoft did remove the links, but if you happen to still somehow get a copy through some mechanism, uh, hold off on installing that. You know, you don't necessarily want to always be the latest and greatest on all your different systems. So the SQL Server teams had, um, uh, they've had issues with this in the past, right? <laughs> this tends to happen for them quite a bit. Uh, have they released an, an updated version of that yet? Or, or do they have a fix out for it? Or is it is the guidance still kind of hold off on installing it? Because it's been a week or so now. Usually they're pretty good about turning around and saying, all right, uh, we were just joking. Don't install that one. Here, here's the real one that works. So funny enough, uh, today at 4.41 p.m. Pacific, so about half an hour ago, um, they released an update. Uh, actually, it wasn't 4.41 p.m., never mind. Um, but earlier today, they did release an update, and they said, you know, we had uh, 270 downloads from the download center of Service Pack 1. No other distribution channels were, you know, out there. Um, they will be re-releasing uh, service pack one um, and they recommend basically you know going through the uninstall service pack one to reinstall service pack one uh, which is a little bit different than what we typically see in like the SharePoint world where it's you know hey we put out service pack one sorry about that here's service pack one mark two to install over that um, so uh, I think uh, yeah, so I don't believe they've actually re-released Service Pack 1 yet. They've just put guidance out there as to what to do if you inadvertently did do that and you're one of those 270 people that inadvertently downloaded it. 
Uh, hopefully those are just testers and everything, right? Nobody, nobody's doing that in production. All right, uh, so let's see. We got SQL, we got SharePoint. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about Office 365? And uh, I would imagine some of the stuff that they announced this week is pretty uh, near and dear to your heart. Well, you know, this uh, security compliance stuff they announced, I believe, what, yesterday? Um, kind of interesting. The, uh, you know, people always talk about uh, the ability for Microsoft to go in and access your customer content or access your content in general. Um, as a, you know, kind of an aside, in the Azure world, um, if you ask Microsoft to, you know, do something through a service ticket where you say, hey, I need your assistance to do X. Um, the only way they're actually ever going to be able to do anything inside your subscription is to be added into the subscription as like a co-administrator. So I know when I was working with someone um, from Microsoft on an issue that I was having in my MSDN, uh, you know, I was like, dude, just just help me out inside Azure Active Directory. Show me what I need to do. And he said, well, you're going to have to add me as a co-administrator, and I'd prefer you not do that. Um, which kind of struck me oddly, but I, I get it that they don't want to be held liable for making changes inside of you know your system. They're more than happy to help you make changes uh, more at that subscription level or with interchanging pieces back and forth, but they don't want to actually get into the content. So in very much the same way that the Azure team is trying to stay hands off on that, uh, Microsoft announced what they call customer lockbox for Office 365. So Essentially, um, being able to go in and give explicit control to Microsoft Engineering to go through and help resolve issues on customer content. So whether that be like a web part, whether that be a page, whether that be the way you've got an app configured, um, you can now go in through the Office 365 admin portal page and give specific data access uh, rights to an engineer, and then you can actually go look inside the Office 365 management activity log to see that they've done that. Um, and it'll you know bubble back up and say, oh, this person, blah, 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 went in and did this. So um, I think it's pretty cool that they're actually making that available because in the past it was always, you know, if it was Office 365 related, I'd call up, I'd open up a ticket, and I'd say, hey, can you help me out with this? And they'd say, sure, can you, Go to you know this URL, click on it, then put in this number. It'll share your screen out, and we can kind of walk you through the process. Now it's just, hey, I've got an issue. I'm going to delegate access to you. Please, could you help us figure out the issue? So I think it's definitely cool. Yeah. So, so this is extending that support mechanism, right? Yep. Uh, so so this is kind of always been there um, within a Microsoft data center and kind of how they run. Um, all of the stuff that they host, whether it's Azure, Office 365, or anything else, um, it's very well documented about the physical and logical controls that are in place, right? Anybody can go out to the Trust Center and see all of those things. Uh, so, so in the past, you know, if they did need access to your tenant for some reason, um, they'd have to kind of get a hold of the global admin and say, okay, can we do this? And then that would be kind of the, the chain that would be followed. And that's what we have from an audit perspective is that, hey, maybe there's some emails or some phone calls that went back and forth. So this bubbles it up and puts it in the customer's hands around, uh, well, you know, now we're not necessarily going to call you when this needs to happen. You're basically going to become a part of our support process. So if you want our help, you're going to have to help us too. And we're going to integrate you into that pipeline. 
so there's some limitations to this, uh, which are probably actually kind of nice, right? So once that alert is raised and a customer is informed that, okay, you've escalated to the point where we need a support engineer to uh, come in and look at something in your tenant, uh, you're going to have 12 hours to respond to that. If you don't respond to it within 12 hours, uh, you're going to kind of have to start the, the whole process over again because you're going to have missed the window of activity. They're going to allocate that engineer or, uh, you know, that resource to something else to help the next person because you missed it. Um, so that's going to be out and that's going to come to basically every Office 365 commercial plan, which is nice that they're not going to limit it to just the eSKUs. Uh, so this means it'll come to the small business plans and everything else too, uh, and kind of carry those bits and pieces through. So, so that'll be really nice to see. And hopefully that uh, clears up some of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt around what Microsoft is doing. I mean, really, it shouldn't have had to clear that up because they've always had this stuff published. Um, but it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to get folks to go out and actually read the documentation and consume the manuals and, and figure out what's going on. And then, like you mentioned, the other part of that is that uh, management API activity stuff. Uh, so that's coming down the pipe, and that's going to be for um, Exchange and SharePoint Online first, uh, right? So this is about, I, I read this as, let's take um, all the functionality that people complain about. So um, like me, SharePoint land, right? Um, audit logs is a big thing. So audit logs in SharePoint, they're, you know, these, these massive files that are just um, pushed back into Excel compatible views, but then they're stored within the site collections and everything else. So this actually starts to surface that data outside of SharePoint, and it starts to surface it for other systems like Exchange as well. So now we can start to get to some of that uh, single pane of glass for viewing into audit and seeing what's going on. So the interesting thing about this is that they came out and they said, okay, we're going to have this API that's out there and it's going to be in pre-release, um, but we're going to work with partners first to um, have all this information be consumable in some way. So they announced a, a slew of partners that are going to have access to this API um, before everybody else. So it, it seems pretty interesting that they're releasing it to ISVs first. And they're saying for ISVs, um, you know, we want you to be the interaction point with customers. So it's not something that they necessarily want to build into the platform to have a, uh, a display perspective on top of that, uh, like within the admin center. Uh, but you might be able to go to a third party and say, OK, help me better integrate with maybe some of your management tooling or something else that's out there. You know, if you already work with a company, I think uh, Avpoint was one of the ISVs they announced, right? So if you're already working with um, Avpoint around some of their management stuff, uh, then maybe this becomes a, a tie into that to uh, start to get more of that hybrid experience, right? Show me what's going on on premises, show me what's going on in the cloud, and give me a, uh, a single view into everything that's happening within there. Um, I think based on the way they announced it, because they said, hey, we're going to ISVs first and everything else and it's pre-release, um, you know, this might put some organizations off from, uh, you know, developing uh, maybe anything more than simple one-offs or things like that. It seems like they're really trying to push and say, hey, go to the third party, go to the ISV uh, community because they're going to be able to help you way better than we can help you or you can help yourselves. Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of as part of this, uh, you know, they say we will release the API as a part of a private preview program this summer. Starting today, customers and partners can sign up here to join the preview program. Um, 
I very much like you just said, they're trying to push this to other organizations. And I think the primary reason for that is that it's an API. So very much like the graph API or any other API, um, there's not necessarily something out there that you can go and just look at and be like, oh, there's my data. Look at that, you know, through some pretty dashboard. So they've got, you know, kind of a list of ISVs that are already working on security and compliance solutions um, as a part of it. And like you mentioned, Avpoint's one of them. There are a couple others, Better Cloud, CloudLock, Cogmotive. Uh, there's a whole list on that blog article, but it's it's interesting that they're trying to push folks to actually go talk to the vendor. And really, to me, the thing that I look at this and I go, huh, I wonder if they're going to start putting out, you know, some sort of uh, management API where the activity log is more than just um, this scheme of information about the tenant, the user, the action, the object, the location, the IP address. But what about, you know, dare I say it, the ULS log um, from your, you know, your scope of the tenant? Um, them putting that out there. I think that would also be pretty powerful for the quote-unquote management activity from the administrator's perspective. Because I know for us, our developers, they go, they try and build something, they deploy it to SharePoint, and they go, oh, why didn't that work? I can't see you know, ULS. And it's because something in their code just exploded when it was trying to access a certain resource or call some certain uh, other REST API. So who knows, maybe that'll come down the pipe as well at some point. But for anybody that's interested, um, you can go sign up for the preview. It's available on that blog article. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well um, for more of a skip the article and just go to the preview program. Um, that's uh, that's definitely some cool stuff, though, with Office 365. And you remember how uh, there was that script that we used to have for Office 365, or actually for SharePoint on-premise where we go through and we create all the users and we create all the relationships between the users and we add all the pictures to the users and all that. Yep. Yeah, so you could kind of do that also, I guess, with uh, um, if, uh, if you went down the path of you know using some of the stuff they made available to um, other folks. I know some folks put out some data sets of how to build those out. Um, Interestingly enough, Microsoft has put out the Office 365 developer tenant sample data. So if you're a dev out there and you are really getting bored with, you know, the three people that you've got for user accounts and the statistical information that is meaningless because you just kind of typed it in randomly, uh, Microsoft does have a data sample out there now that you can go and you can import into your Office 365 tenant. Um, it's pretty snazzy. It uses a little app. Uh, to load the data up into your tenant and effectively kind of give you information that you can work against that'll make hopefully whatever your demonstration is or uh, whatever you know business case use case you're working to solve the problem for um, actually a little bit more approachable with real data because I know at least for my devs it always tends to be something where I look in their data and they've got like I said three or four users and They've got, I don't want to say meaningless data, but they have data that's very genericized that uh, may or may not actually be useful to them to try and write queries against or uh, display whatever dashboard they're working on. So uh, I think this is going to come in really, really handy to folks that are working inside Office 365 that are you know, starved for uh, something to actually have 
large chunk of data that they can throw at their system. So this is interesting, right? This is one of those uh, dev.office.com release things. Uh, and because I said dev.office.com, Jeremy Think has to take a drink now. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, this is all about populating uh, really your tenant with data, right? And that's not just your, uh, maybe just your SharePoint tenant, uh, but also some other things, right? If you need to get some simple emails or things like that out there. Tends to be pretty basic and it doesn't work across everything, but it'll definitely uh, help out in a pinch. Um, you know, I would still say if anybody out there uh, works for a Microsoft partner, probably the better route to go would be uh, the Microsoft Office demo site and actually populate your tenant with full um, kind of hero content. So that gives you all the users, all the signals, all the emails, um, and they're really actually like laid out. So, you know, there, there's actual conversations between people in the microblogs and things like that. Um, and the one thing mod demos also give you that this one won't uh, would be Yammer data. So if you're doing kind of social signals and demos across that, or you're developing applications in that space, uh, that can be really helpful to have as well. Um, even though, you know, the stuff only lives for 90 days, but there's no reason you can't populate mod, mod stuff into your developer tenant either. Uh, you know, it's out there, it's going to stand there, it's yours, it's just going to overwrite everything that's there. Um, one other trick that I actually use as well, so you talked about how we used to, uh, you know, use those scripts to build out demo environments on-premises. Um, I still use that stuff, so, you know, it, I, the one I use uh, throws out, like, I think 300, 350 test users, uh, gives them all pictures and relationships and the other things. Uh, what I'll do to get, like, those users up into the cloud for demos and things like that uh, I, I tend to do demos around uh, DurSync and AD-Sync and um, Office 365 Azure AD connectivity. Uh, so I'll put those things up into a domain controller and then DurSync, and then all that stuff gets shipped across that way too. But if you want, like you said, all the extra documents and signals and all the other things that are going to come along the way, uh, you're really either going to need to do like a data population this way or do like the Microsoft Office uh, demo thing. And, and push that out. Um, certainly helpful. Um, like you said, I know uh, it's really easy to get caught in the, uh, the crux of being a developer and saying, I developed a solution and it works on my machine or it works in my tenant or something else. And then you move it over to the other side and you go, but yeah, you know, we've got uh, like 10,000 users on this side. We don't have three. Uh, so what does that look like and how does it affect performance and, and what happens to it and everything else that uh, goes along with that? The the one caveat, of course, is that if you're using just a developer tenant, and this may have changed, but I could have sworn uh, the Office 365 dev tenants only allowed up to five users. So you may still be in a pickle uh, if you're trying to do something that's high content. They might have they might have changed that to 25. I don't remember. I haven't checked recently. I use uh, another tenant that I've got that has 25 licenses associated with it, so I don't know any of the better. Yeah, don't ask me. I use the demo tenants. I don't know what developers do. It sounds like developer -y stuff. Yeah, yeah. You're the developer in the room, so I'm going to I'll let you handle that. Um you know, one of the interesting developer things I saw, so we get a uh, a, a lot of requests for how can we do things in Office 365 or like SharePoint Online uh, the same way that we do them on-premises or what's the equivalent functionality. Um, so I know one of the things that we do with clients a lot is functionality around timer jobs and uh, batch processing. 
So it, we've got uh, either like a list or a data set or something that we need to go and iterate through on a regular basis, or maybe we need to update user profiles or something like that. Um, and you know, how can we accomplish this same kind of thing in Office 365 uh, and SharePoint Online? So um, we could use workflows to a small degree, right? We'd be limited by the functionality that's available within them and everything else. Um, so one of the interesting things I saw pop up on MSDN was some guidance around uh, using Azure Web Jobs. So these are those kind of recurring jobs that can execute um, basically .NET code, so like a compiled console application or something like that, uh, within an Azure App Service, what used to be an Azure website, right? So I've got this job that I want to run every hour on the hour or every 15 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so as long as you can encapsulate that functionality within a console application and make it executable, then hey, we can just call that from a web job and that can talk to our tenant uh, with CSOM. So let's go ahead and do everything that we need to do. And now we get that processing you know, every hour on the hour and it goes out and touches and um, does whatever analysis it needs to do and updates and things like that. So as long as you can get done what you need to get done within CSOM, uh, because every Office 365 tenant has an Azure subscription associated with it, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a free Azure website that has a web job running in it that can function as our timer service for SPO? Uh, so, so I thought this was a, a really neat workaround. Uh, I tend to use uh, web jobs for some other things. I never really thought about using them this way with um, SPO, but it tends to uh, fill a really big gap and it looks like the functionality would be um, kind of spot on for timer jobs, just as long as we're, um, again, able to do things with CSOM, right? So we don't have access to the full object model, but uh, we never have had it in Office 365. So let's do things from the tenant on down. So uh, it's funny you mentioned this. Um, back in, she brought this up uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago, uh, our good buddy Vescu. Um, he actually published kind of a series of articles about using web jobs uh, with Office 365 for kind of, you know, different asynchronous things we want to do. Um, one of which, uh, which is probably the most useful to me, at least, because it tends to be that question that pops up that folks are like, well, we know that we can provision sites, but we want to have like a request page and capture some information and then create a site collection properly. Um, so Vescu uh, actually has an article out there called Asynchronous On-Demand Site Collection Provisioning to Office 365 with Azure Web Jobs. And he kind of walks through the entire process from the request approval to the complex templates that are going to get used. So if you had templates that uh, were outside of just, you know, what the base uh, Office 365 templates look like, how you can do that. And then how you can collect things from a metadata perspective and actually have something that removed from SharePoint, the site directory, um, uh, pop up and be populated. So it was kind of a neat little thing that he kind of shows, walks you through how to do all this. Um, he does go down the path of using a provider hosted app uh, with Office 365 in conjunction with an Azure uh, web job, but very, very elegant solution. Um, pretty handy stuff. If you're looking for a way to do things that you potentially used to do, uh, you know, on premise through uh, full trust code, these web jobs are probably one angle you might want to start looking at to get around some of the things, the complexities of Office 365. So the article on MSDN was written by, um, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, uh, Tobias uh, Zimmergren. 
Yep. Uh, so it didn't come from the internal kind of uh, team at Microsoft. You know, it's nice to see uh, community com contributions there. Uh, but then all the code for that is stored over in Office Dev PMP. Uh, so we've talked about PMP quite a bit in the past before. And all the assets that you're talking about as well for that uh, site provisioning solution, uh, which looks like it's been pretty active on PMP lately. If you've been watching that repo, they've had a bunch of activity going back and forth on it. Uh, all of those provisioning modules and everything, so uh, provisioning for the creation of sites and kind of um, the underlying framework behind all that, all the console applications and things that drive it, um, and then some of the uh, like page and uh, publishing provisioning stuff. Uh, that all lives out in GitHub, so anybody can go ahead and look at that guidance, they can fork it, they can do uh, whatever they want to, to do with it, right? Uh, one of the other things that they've added uh, just a couple months ago to that was they have a, uh, a Yammer provisioning piece. Uh, so that was nice to see uh, pop in and uh, happen with that. So basically that allowed uh, for once you provision your site, you know, they've kind of got, hey, we need to make UI modifications. Um, so that one can go ahead and uh, uh, rather than using the default site feed, if you're leveraging Yammer within your tenant, let's just go ahead and surface the Yammer feed. So, uh, you, you know, we can go ahead and make all these modifications and things like that. And that uh, Office 365 uh, PMP team, uh, they've been absolutely just throwing all sorts of stuff against the wall. Uh, and a ton of it is sticking, right? Uh, they, they've got some really great releases out there right now. So what you're telling me is that uh, Veza, also known as Vescu Jubonin, I butchered his name. He's going to make me buy him a drink sometime. Um, what you're telling me is he and that team for PNP are just kind of, you know, trying to compete with the Azure team. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, no, I, you know, the Azure team moves at a, an entirely different pace. Uh, but, but those guys, um, the, the, the nice thing about PNP is a lot of that stuff is driven out of the work that um, the consultants and MCS are actually doing with clients, right? So it's not just that um, they're making functionality for the sake of functionality. Uh, it's This stuff is driven by real-world customer requests, whether that's coming from working with customers or uh, highly voted things on user voice. Um, this is driven by real-world scenarios. So they tend to be uh, very consumable from the start, right? If somebody's going to walk in and they say, I have a problem today, um, chances are, if it's a common problem that other people have had, it's probably addressed in the guidance someplace. And if it's not, anybody can just go in there and open up an issue or, uh, you know, if they want to fix some of that functionality themselves, they can submit a PR uh, against that GitHub repo and uh, be off to the races. Very, very cool. And for anybody that is doing uh, any coding that uses CSOM uh, with Office 365, there is a new version that's out there. It came out about a week ago. Uh, you can go hit it up also from the Download Center, or if you go out to Vescu's blog, boom, you'll find it right there, too. Um, so what else is going on, Scott? Uh, any any updates uh, you want to talk about Yammer? You mentioned a little bit about Yammer just a minute ago with the web jobs. Uh, no, I don't, I don't like Yammer, man. If you want to talk about Yammer, you can. I'm, I like Slack. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Slack is pretty sweet. Um, I'm waiting for Microsoft to buy them. But uh, if you're a Yammer user, you may notice a slight outage uh, coming up in, I guess, about a month from now. So it'll be after Build. It'll be after uh, Ignite. be before WPC, for those of you that are 
going to WPC. Um, but uh, Office 365, the IT Pro Network, uh, they posted up an announcement today. What is today? Um, that basically said, hey, we're moving into Microsoft Data Center. So, uh, you know, I don't really know what this means outside of that. Uh, there's one blog article out there from a French guy whose name I'll butcher, just like Vescu. Um, prefer not to do that, try and keep butchering down. Um, but he basically, you know, just said, hey, look, it's going to happen on May 16th. Um, this is the message that popped up, and there will be a timeout during that time period. But once that time period's over, uh, all the IP addresses for Yammer will be IP, IP addresses inside Microsoft data centers. So this will help out, hopefully, for a lot of different uh organizations that are leery of using Yammer today because they sit outside, uh, you know, they were acquired by Microsoft and like many other things, it takes time to move systems over. So very cool to see. Um, hopefully that will uh, mean better things down the road. Mm, yeah, one can always hope, right? Maybe, maybe Yammer will stop doing all that crazy A-B testing and it'll actually slow down and folks will know where things are at any given point in time. I mean, that'd be nice. That, that would be nice, yeah. Or, or they could add a mark all as red button to the inbox. That would be like the most killer feature ever. That, uh, that too would also be nice. Um, yeah. All right, let's see. What, what else do we have? Uh, so uh, one more Office 365 thing. Uh, a while back, they announced uh, encryption per file encryption uh, for uh, OneDrive and files that are stored within there, or OneDrive for business, rather. Um, so they've also said that uh, this encryption is going to be coming to uh, Exchange Online. Um, so the one thing that's kind of missing from this, but is still on, it looks like it's still on the roadmap, um, is the ability for customers to eventually manage those encryption keys themselves. Um, so that'll be nice. Maybe that comes in the form of um, Azure Vault, which is kind of the, the cloud HSM solution Microsoft's offering or maybe that integrates with uh, other third-party vaults, things like that. Uh, but it'll be nice to see uh, more of that encryption story come into play, um, especially when we start talking about uh, data at rest, because we've already got SSL and uh, TLS encryption uh, for most things across the wire. Uh, I'm still waiting on some of this stuff to hopefully come down the pipe for uh, Azure proper someday. Uh, it's on the roadmap there as well. Um, but I know I work with um, some customers who uh, find that encryption story to be a little bit lacking um, because mostly we have to develop a lot of that stuff ourselves today. True. Um, I think, you know, as as they continue to uh, get more and more organizations inside Office 365, though, there's obviously more and more fingers poking them, asking them to uh, do some of these things around encryption and whatnot so hopefully that will uh increase the cadence on uh security and you know, encryption so that we're not having little bucklets of segmented workloads uh not being encrypted so yeah it, it'll be nice right it, it seals that offering up quite a bit more especially as we talk about uh, enhancements to dlp and all the other things that are coming down the pipe on that side so winning over kind of the, the security suite or, or, or your security and compliance officers tends to make uh, going to the cloud quite a bit easier, right? Because if you can have them advocating for you uh, and you can have them on your side, 
which for the most part, again, unless there's like regulatory or compliance things, it's really about educating everybody and saying, here's what the functionality actually is. Once we can get people there, then uh, it makes it quite a bit easier to start to transition and build solutions over there from day one. Quite true. Quite, quite true. So Scott, have you, uh, have you gotten a chance to pull down the Windows 10 update yet? Uh, which Windows 10 update? Windows 10 phone, Windows 10, Windows 10. Uh, I believe I'm on the latest build. I don't, I don't know. I haven't had too much of a chance to play around with it. What am I missing? So uh, apparently there is a yet another uh, Windows 10 update that came out. Um, it's uh, apparently mostly kind of a bug fix release. So they've been going down the path of doing these uh, different quote-unquote circle or I guess ring releases. Um, but uh, you know today they released yet another uh, build. Uh, I'll have to go back to the Twitter to find what build it was, um, but it's one of those things that, uh, you know, if you're looking for the latest and greatest and more than happy to have little issues pop up here and there, um, you know, more power to you, but if you are, uh, you know, wanting to be on the bleeding edge, it does look like uh, some UI improvements and apps were released as a part of this latest build. So I believe it's uh, 1061, or I guess that's actually 161. Um, 10061, um, Microsoft put it out and basically said bug releases for all, um, or bug fixes, sorry, uh, as well as just some, like I said, interface fixes and whatnot. So it is out there for uh, tablets. I don't know if this also includes phone. I'm going to guess phone is going to be something that's uh, something down the, down the road. Um, from all accounts, though, if you're a Windows phone user, you're happy and crazy anyway because yesterday they released version 10052 for phones. So this cadence of releasing these updates uh, is definitely picking up. Um, they had, uh, I guess, you know, 11 days ago their last Windows 10 tech preview for phone. Um, so maybe it's going to be every 10 days we're going to see an updated version, and hopefully that does not carry over once it goes RTM. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, so like you said, that, that cadence, they were down to about 11 days between releases. Um, and some of that, it sounded like they just had to hit because uh, folks who were participating in that insider program, uh, they weren't necessarily getting the functionality they needed. Like it was really, really broken. And being able to participate in that was kind of hard. So I know a lot of uh, just from watching Twitter and things like that, it seemed like a lot of folks applied the update and said, yeah, finally, we're really excited to do this. And then, oh my gosh, this is broken. How do I go back and do a restore? Oh, I'm on a, I'm, I'm on a Lumia. I'm on this. I've got to use this recovery tool, this recovery tool, that kind of thing. Uh, so hopefully if they can get around some of the uh, app issues and other things, uh, it'll be nice to kind of calm down and say, okay, now we have something that's at least usable and now we can start to go to that kind of, uh, regular deployment model. Well, so if it, if it means anything, uh, very much in the sense that, like you said, it breaks a lot of things when it seems to have those new builds pushed out. Uh, they have four things that they say, here are some of the things we have fixed, uh, probably the most notable two items, which made me giggle when I ran into them um, as quote-unquote known issues on the previous build. Uh, one was, we fixed the issue with Hyper-V preventing you from enabling it. Yeah, so that that apparently is fixed. 
Um, the other is we fix the or Visual Studio will no longer crash when creating a new Universal App project. So that's probably very very welcome to some of the app developers that were probably screaming when uh, the last build came out. There are a bunch of known issues with this build though. So you know, like Scott just said. Uh, as you go through these things, you occasionally run into bumps in the road. Um, in this case, when you minimize an app playing audio, it may stop playing once it's minimized. Who knows? Yeah, um, eh, stuff happens. Yep. But you, uh, you want to shut this one down? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so, Dan, uh, where can people find more information about this show uh, if they want to get in contact with us, things like that? You want to kind of run through that real quick? Yeah, sure. So you can either, uh, you know, multiple different ways to get a hold of us. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Brewery FM. Uh, you can also find the show notes at uh, HTTP colon slash slash uh, brewery.fm. That'll take you to all of them. But, you know, we like patterns and practices. So if you're trying to find the ones immediately real quick for a specific episode. This is episode 12. Um, you can just go to HTTP colon slash slash pub dot brewery FM uh, forward slash Brewery 012. Um, so that is brewery.fm, by the way. Um, but yeah, so you can find those pretty easily, pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, if you are on Facebook, which many people are, some people aren't, uh, you can go out, you can find us on there, Brewery FM. We post show notes, we post other interesting little clips that we find throughout the week that we may or may not talk about during the show. Um, you can find us out on iTunes, so we'd love to have you uh, go out and give us a rating on iTunes. That helps more people find us. Uh, it also helps you convey how you feel about us back to us if you don't feel like telling us directly. Um, last but not least, if you have you know kind of a query or a question, you can hit us up on email, uh, info at brewery.fm. That goes to both of us, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, maybe from the future if you're getting a response from Scott, or it may be two days later if it's from me. Um, but yeah, there are many different ways to get a hold of us. Uh, typically, your best bet is to hit up the website, uh, brewery.fm, and then reach out, branch out from there. Yeah, good to know. Thanks, Dan. No problem. The mighty jungle, the Scot sleeps tonight.